What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Today's episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Ponko Chicken. Ponko Chicken, if you did not already know, is a unique spin on Japanese and Western cuisine. Uh, there are stores, if you're not familiar, um, all around the Atlanta area. Uh, there's one in Marietta now. There's one in Buckhead. There's one in Shambly. There's one in uh, Midtown. They're popping up everywhere because Ponko is awesome and uh, they're like family. So um, go check out Ponko if you have not already. It is the home of the award-winning Japanese American Chicken Tender just to brag on them a little bit more, they were Verizon Super Bowl Live top-selling vendor, three-peat Taste of Atlanta award winner, um, Midtown Alliance Best Taste winner. Just they won all the awards because Ponco is great and Ponco is delicious. So if you are in the Atlanta area and are looking to try something new and good and delicious, go check out Ponco Chicken today and tell them that I sent you over. Uh, also. If you have not already, go check out ChaseThomasPodcast.com. It's where all of my episodes to all of my podcasts are, all of my writing that I do, uh, more information on me and who I am um, and why you should be listening to this podcast and reading my work and all of that great stuff. Go do that. Go to Chase Thomas Podcast today. If you're an Apple podcast listener, go ahead and leave me five stars and a rating and a review. That's great. I need it. Um, it helps the show continue to grow and all of that good stuff. Um, you can listen on SoundCloud, Spotify, like I said, Apple, Google Play, everywhere where you can get your podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast will be there. So go do that today. Um, all right. I think that's everything. We can get into today's episode. Uncle Darren, let's go. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate, I already hate it. I hate it. All right, hello, and welcome to a Tuesday evening edition of the Chase Thomas Podcast. Old friend, John Taylor, is here because, John, we we just, I've seen the pictures of all the different uniform changes for all the players moving in Major League Baseball this winter, and I've got to tell you that nobody looks weirder in a different uniform, both because the uniform itself sucks ass, but also... Madison Bumgarner does not uh, does not look right in an Arizona Diamondback uniform. It is uncanny. Although I will say this: like, if there were ever a team where spiritually he's belonged this whole time, it's Arizona. And maybe that's more like the old Kirk Gibson, like Tony Larusa, red ass Diamondbacks that were all about like frontier justice. But Honestly, yeah, it's it's weird, and a lot of that obviously is because like he's been in a, a giant forever, and so seeing him in any other uniform, I think would have just been disconcerting. But I think at least my mind can make the connection that it's like he. If also, I think the same thing would have happened if he had signed with the Braves. It would have looked weird initially, but my brain would have been like, no, that makes sense though. That's something I could have always seen. I think it would have been much weirder if he'd signed with like, I don't know, like the Brewers or you know the the Padres. It'd be really weird if he had signed with the Padres. Um, you know, like the Yankees, that would have just been strange, like just totally alien to the brain. 
Um, there's there's just something about him being a Diamondback that kind of makes like a subconscious level of sense, I think. I guess for me, it's like I already had thought about him in a Yankee uniform, a Red Sox uniform, just like one of the big market contenders, even the Astros were like, this seems right. Like when Verlander made the move, you're like, yeah, he was great for a long time. This veteran went to a contender and that's just what I was expecting for a while. The Diamondbacks are not a traditional contender and it, there's a lot of different variables that make, I think the Madison Bumgarner signing the most interesting this winter thus far. Um, I love the, to, I don't know if you intended to make a subtle note to the frontier um, in Arizona for Madison Bumgarner because by all accounts, it looks like what had uh, swung Bumgarner towards Arizona in the first place is some frontier type stuff in that uh, he has horses and uh, those horses are located in Phoenix, Arizona. Yeah, which I love. It, it's the most bumgarner thing imaginable, right? <laughs> that part of part of what would matter to him is a place where he could be close to his horses and be close to his spring training home, which apparently he and his wife love. Um, I mean, I think it's I think it's kind of similar. We're probably going to hear something similar when Garrett Cole does his press conference one Wednesday morning, and someone asks him inevitably, you know, what about New York appealed to you more than Los Angeles and Houston or wherever else, you know, whoever else was in the running for him. And, you know, he'll probably say something about how there's something about New York that appealed to him, whatever it happens to be. Which I think, and that this, you saw the same thing with Zach Wheeler when he chose the Phillies, in part because he and his wife are from, I believe they're both from New Jersey, um, or his wife's family is from New Jersey. I think I, I don't think actually know where Zach He's from Georgia. Zach okay, Wheeler so I know is, is from somewhere in Georgia, because I remember. Okay. Like, reading, yeah. So, yeah, so, he, I mean, he, I think there was a lot said that it's like his wife and his, his wife and his wife's family, they're from New Jersey, and he wanted to be close to home, so to speak. I mean, Granted, Philadelphia is only close to a certain portion of New Jersey, but hey, it's still close all the same. It's closer than whoever else was in. I'd actually know the other teams that were in on Zach Wheeler. That feels like it was like eight. Number two, who I will have a yeah. insider on later, which just the weirdest stuff. The White Sox continuing being the weirdest team in baseball, but uh, continue. Yeah. But anyway, so I, 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 I'm not surprised that's the direction Bumgarner went. I think it's it's been interesting to watch the kind of top-tier free agents say, and, and Rendon, too. Is Anthony Rendon's another one who said, with his rather loud dog whistle of he doesn't like the he doesn't like the Hollywood atmosphere of Los Angeles and prefers the uh, red tinted suburbs of Orange County and Anaheim, but yeah, I mean obviously obviously any free agent's going to take all that kind of stuff into consideration, but it certainly does feel like hey you know this is this is a thing that more not such more but that free agents really do actually do give a shit about. Yeah, and. One of my other favorite things about Bumgarner, I found out this uh, this winter. I I don't know if I just somehow like I I don't know how this was so surprising to me, but I hadn't realized that he's only one year older than Steven Strasburg. Wow, that is is that not insane? I, I, it, it's insane because then it makes you realize that he has been in the league like I think next year will be his tenth season in the big leagues. It, you forget that he broke into the big leagues as like a twenty year old. Yeah. Or whatever it was that his first his first season in Major League Baseball, I think, was his age twenty season. I don't think he had quite turned twenty one yet. Um, he yeah, he was he was he had just turned twenty, like a month before his debut. It, it's it's similar to to another guy who just signed Rick Porcello, who's been in the league mm. a decade and is still yeah. only like twenty nine years old because he <laughs> debuted when he was either nineteen or twenty. Because he 
he came up very, very quickly after he got drafted. But he was up the next year, so he debuted at 20, and he's now 30 years old. It's uh, And he has already thrown over 2,000 career innings at the age of 30. Shout out to him. Clay Buckholtz has to be in that conversation too, right? I feel like he was uh, up pretty early and had been around forever. Um, well, Buckholtz, Buckholtz got drafted. Did he get drafted out of high school or out of college? I think he got kicked out of college. He got drafted out of a, a JUCO, or not a JUCO, but a small college in Texas after getting kicked out of regular college. Um, yeah, he was he was 23 when he got called up. Though. Oh, hmm. yeah, he's still yeah, but he's I mean he just, he's always maybe he just has a young looking face and it feels like he's just around forever. I don't know. Not no more. He don't. <laughs> <laughs> not anymore. Um, all legends must die. Um, but yeah, I think it's interesting when you look at the age disparity between him and Strasburg, and then. I mean, the Garrett Cole is just a different thing entirely because guys like him don't hit the open market like that ever in baseball. Like, right. The, it just or it doesn't feel like it anymore. Like, no. I mean, I if you're Jacob deGrom, you're sick to your stomach, right? Like, this is just... Uh, I mean, you got a lot of money from the Mets, but to see what Strasburg got, who's only one year younger than, uh, than uh, Bumgarner, and he gets a seven-year deal, and he still doesn't even get anywhere close to what uh Garrett Cole got um in the nine years 300 plus and that's speaking to your point about him in the press conference with New York that's if someone asked him what swung you towards New York Garrett Cole should honestly just be very upfront about it and just say um did you see how much I signed for that is uh what swung me toward New York just be honest about it be like did you see the amount of money they gave me that is why I'm a New York Yankee there's no real point in pretending otherwise. I mean, and I'm sure he would admit because Garrett Cole is a pretty straightforward guy. But yeah, when it comes down to it, one team offered to pay him more money than all the other teams, and his job as a free agent is to maximize his value. And of course, like I think there would have been a much bigger conversation if it had been a, a choice between the Yankees offering less money than something like, uh, I don't know, like than the Rangers offering more money. Because then it has become a legitimate question of do I care more about the money or do I care more about contending? But obviously, when the Yankees make the biggest offer, that's a pretty easy that's a pretty easy choice, I imagine, for him to make, unless there really was a huge pull for him to go back to Southern California. Which, at the end of the day, he's got enough money to buy a small chunk of Southern California. So who really cares at a certain point? Can I read you a quote from ESPN Insider Buster Only on Bumgarner? Absolutely. If there's anybody in baseball that metrics don't apply to him, it's Madison Bumgarner. He's such a competitor that unbelievable postseason history tells you that there's a lot more to baseball's Paul Bunyan than simply numbers. The metrics don't apply to him. I don't know what that means. Yeah, that seems to be Buster straining for some kind of narrative that doesn't need to be there or exist. Like two things can be true: he is a postseason legend, and what he did sure. in San Francisco is insane. But also, five years. For someone who's trending the way Bumgarner is trending, is concerning, and the metrics do apply in that he is regressing. It's happening to it just happens to pitchers. This is part of the deal. Yeah, it's it's weird. It's it's not like just because Bumgarner has done X, Y, and Z in the past means he's not going to age. If yeah. anything, we've watched him age. Um, yeah, that's a. I, I'm, I'm guessing that's just that again. That's just only trying to to jump on the narrative that is Bumgarner, that he's a maverick and does things his own way. And by extension, his stats will be maverick or something. But no, it's like, that's like, you're right. You, like you just said, any, 
any pitcher carries risk. Five years for a pitcher who just turned, uh, however old Bumgarner just turned, 31, I think, 30, and has almost 2,000 innings on his arm, almost 2,000 regular season innings on his arm, plus the, you know, 100-some he's thrown in the postseason. So he's he's already almost at 2,000 with all those put together. You know, of course there's going to be some risk. And I, I think... If you're the Diamondbacks, you know, you feel like it's not as much risk because the, the injuries he's had have been complete fluke things, you know, the dirt bike accident and then getting his hand broken before the start of the, uh, the 2018 or 19 season. I can't remember which. Um, but then you look at the other stuff, you know, his velocity is not really there anymore. He's last year, he was pretty much, he was slightly above league average, but not terribly. So he still makes a ton of starts when he's, when he's able to. And again, wait, like the two times I mean, he has been able Lumgarner to. <laughs> that's yep uh, the, the Corey Kluber thing is its own weird like well it's the same thing they're getting older they're awesome when they're available they're still really good their velocity's dropping a little bit but it's freak injuries where Kluber just got hit on the forearm by like there's nothing Kluber did last year that is his fault like it just he no. a little bit in 2018 from 2017 which was his career year I don't know it's kind of interesting he's significantly older he's in his mid-30s but the way you describe Bumgarner there just reminds me a lot of how people are talking about Kluber at this point. Well, it's funny. You could almost think of these guys as kind of a new market inefficiency because even if they're just slightly above league average, like even if, if Bumgarner and Kluber both pitch to like 110 ERA pluses this year, one, that's still pretty good. That's, you know, that's better than what you're getting out of most starters. And there's also a lot of upside still there with both of them. They could easily exceed that and you wouldn't be surprised. But I think there's also a lot to be said uh, in this era where more and more innings have gone to relievers. We saw last year, a, like I think it was the most innings ever that went to relievers last year, but bullpens did not perform all that well. And I think we've finally reached that point where there are simply too many innings being given to relievers and teams are asking too much of their bullpens because there just simply aren't that many good relievers to go around. This is something uh, Jared Diamond wrote about very uh, eloquently at the Wall Street Journal during last season. There really are just a finite number of guys who are good pitchers like the most major league teams in the minor leagues are littered with dudes who throw 95 plus and have one semi above average secondary pitch, but actually turning them into good pitchers who know what they're doing and can locate and command and control and all that fun stuff. That's hard. And most bullpens do not have more than three or four guys who you trust in any given moment. The rest of them are just kind of dudes. You, you kind of filter or you, uh, you revolve through just to eat innings when you need it. So there is something to be said about locking up a dude or acquiring a dude in Bumgarner or Kluber, who even if his best days are behind him, um, and even if you know you, there's risk going forward as to how much he'll be able to give you, when they're healthy, you can pencil them in for at least 180 to 200 pretty good innings. There's not a lot of pitchers left that can do that. Um, you look up the number of pitchers last year who even exceeded 180 innings. I would, I'm, I'm going to look it up now because I'm just curious. I would wager it's not more than a dozen, you know, maybe two dozen, somewhere in the, somewhere in the dozen to two dozen range, I would guess, but I am, I am not going to look it up because I am curious. Um, there, there is real value to guys who can do that. And I think to a certain degree, that's maybe why Bumgarner got a contract a little under what we would have said. Actually, there were 33 guys who pitched 180 or more innings last year. That's, that's more than I expected. But a lot of those guys are also like staff aces who are just not going to be readily available. Guys like Verlander, Shane Bieber, Cole, well, just got picked up, uh, Zach Granke, DeGrom. You know, on the free agent market, just aren't, those guys usually don't just pop up out of nowhere. Mike Fires actually is one of those guys, which is crazy to me. Um, 
But I think there is a lot of value to be found in those guys. And I think it's probably why Bumgarner got there, why they're surprised that Bumgarner didn't break the $100 million mark. I don't necessarily think he should have, but I would think people were expecting a little more than what it ended up being, especially when you throw in the deferrals. And why the Rangers gave up seemingly so little for Kluber in a trade that still I find really strange from the Indians' perspective, short of simply they just don't feel like paying Corey Kluber anymore, which hey, that's their prerogative, and it's why they can't really be taken seriously as a franchise going forward. So, We'll get to Kluber, because I have more thoughts on that. And I think there is an all... There's two... I, I would listen to two schools of thought. The one that you just outlined for Kluber, but also the idea that they just didn't think he, he was good anymore. And like they knew something that other teams don't. That he's he's cooked, and the trade value... Like They wanted Brandon Marsh from Los Angeles, by all accounts, and LA wasn't uh, agreeable on that front. So... I, we'll get to them in just a second, but I do want to know from your perspective, we've joked about Arizona on this podcast a lot in the last couple of years because of how they handled the post JD Martinez run and just like kind of contending and then changing their mind and reducing payroll and not really going for it um, under Mike Hazen, but doing some shrewd stuff that kept them afloat um, depending on how you look at it. But should we, cont- should we commend Arizona for trying to rebuild through the middle without fully tearing it down, signing a Zach Grinky, signing like keeping Robbie Ray when they didn't have to. Um, I, I do think it's interesting that they are trying to kind of replenish their farm system, wait on some of their top guys to get up while also locking down veterans who just, um, I don't know, they're high risk and we'll see what Zach Grinky looks like in the next couple of years. And they could have moved him. They didn't move him. And, oh. I mean, they did move it, but I'm saying like guys like that, that they just held on and paid. Like, do we give them more credit on that front than we should? I mean, one man's Arizona can look a lot like, you know, one person can look like they're being just buffeted by the winds and just going in whatever direction the winds happen to be pushing them. But I do think there is some kind of strategy there of just kind of being hyper flexible and hyper adaptive where instead of declaring one hard course one way or the other, instead of saying we're all in, everything we do is going to be toward that, or saying we're doing a hard tank and tearing it all down. I like the way you put it. It's rebuilding kind of in the middle, where if you have something like a Bumgarner situation where you can get the guy, he's interested, and you can get him for what he feels like a fair price, why not? But on the other hand, if you can get a package for someone like a Paul Goldschmidt or a Zach Greinke featuring some high minors guys who are ready to contribute now for, for very little... I think Arizona has kind of made that their thing where they recognize that they do not have the resources. Like they didn't have, I don't think they, I don't, they, they felt probably like they didn't have the resources to extend Paul Gulch, even though as it turns out, they probably could have gotten him for cheaper than they thought. Although the days of Paul Goldschmidt as a superstar may, may kind of be in the rearview mirror. He had a pretty average season overall for the, for the, for the Cardinals. Um, they felt like they couldn't carry Granke's salary anymore because he is making a, believe like 35 million dollars this year which is insane and it's an insane amount of money for any team to be to be uh, committed to so i think they they kind of have to try to find that because i know that the diamondbacks are not exactly a financial heavyweight um everything from the last several years in arizona suggested that their ownership is really only willing to commit up to a certain point granky was kind of their lone exception and i i would imagine that they probably regretted that from day one that it was probably just too big an outlay so I think that's just the kind of inevitable strategy. The strategy they felt was probably both inevitable and smart for a team that's kind of middle of the pack payroll wise, 
stuck in a hard division, but still has an opening to be a contender if everything kind of breaks right. That you want to do the things that are affordable, and when a guy starts to get too expensive, you move on. And I think, you know, people probably go, wasn't that what Cleveland's doing with Kluber? Yes, and I imagine that they probably think they're trying to do the same thing. It's just harder. I don't think Cleveland's earned that benefit of the doubt, though, especially because they have a lot more visible holes on that roster than Arizona does now. If you, if you look at the Diamondbacks roster right now, assuming they don't move Robbie Ray, and I actually I probably think they are going to end up moving Robbie Ray because by signing Bumgarner, they've kind of created a, you know, a depression in the market to now take advantage of. But you look at their lineup, it's, it's fine. It, it needs some work. Like, I don't know who Joshua Rojas is, so he probably should not be their starting right fielder. They need an outfielder some way or another. Um, they, they, ideally, they could do better than Jake Lamb at third base. But the top half of that lineup is solid. Defensively, they're pretty good. Um, Rotation-wise, it's strong. You know, Zach Gallen is a really nice guy to have as a kind of your fifth or sixth starter, uh, along with, Jake, with, with Luke Weaver. The bullpen could use some help, too. But I think if you if you look at their roster, the holes you kind of see are is stuff that could be filled without too much work. Honestly, they don't need like a really big star to plug into any of those spots. You know, if you look at the list of free agent outfielders, like I don't fit in the market for a guy like Nick Castellanos to play right field. Although you could argue that they really should be, but even really someone like a a Cole Calhoun or you know some kind of maybe some kind of platoon situation in right field or of some sort to, to take care of that. Like, yeah, something like that, something where it's relatively inexpensive and easy to fill. Like I I think obviously Garcia would have made a lot of sense there, or maybe it'll never happen now because of, and I don't think it ever would have happened in the first place, but now, especially with Bumgarner there, Puig, Puig would make a lot of sense for that team in right field. And he would probably come relatively cheap. Same with like a, I know Domingo Santana can't field to save his life, and he is not a good fit for a National League team in that regard, but someone else that could kind of kick the tires on and see, hey, maybe he could work out there. You know, same thing with, I mean, I think they're just generally a fair number of out, like outfield is something you can fill relatively cheap. You know, they're, they're of course, they're elite level star outfielders. I don't think they're going to be in, in the running for like Marcelo Zuna, who I think is probably going to end up getting a deal past what they would want to spend, but they can make something work there to give them a pretty good lineup, all things considered, you know, same thing at third base. Maybe they, maybe they make a, a move for, you know, obviously not going to be in the race for Josh Donaldson, but maybe they take a flyer on Travis Shaw and see if they can get him to bounce back. Maybe Todd Frazier for one year, maybe Jed Jerko. I mean, those aren't great options. Certainly you could do a lot better, but I think Arizona's whole thing is to kind of play in the middle, you know, acquire stars where you can, if the price is reasonable, move on from other stars if they're getting too expensive or you think you can get a good deal for, because that's the thing. I think that they're just, I think their, their goal really is to amass as many, you know, pre-arb guys as they can, which is why, you know, in that, in that trade for, in that Goldschmidt trade, I think a lot of people saw the return they got of Luke Weaver and Carson Kelly. And I, I know I did. I kind of hand waved it as like, that's it. That's all you're going to get for Paul Goldschmidt is a middle rotation starter and a okay catcher. But the truth is those guys plug into the lineup and the rotation now are league average or better now and will continue to be that barring injury for the next six years at or four to six years for virtually nothing, which is the most important thing to Arizona, which then opens up the ability to go after a guy like Bumgarner on a reasonable contract. They're never, I don't think they're ever going to be players barring a change in ownership for something like for someone like Granky again, 
But I think this is their strategy going forward. It's cheap at the margins, occasional splashes, you know, trade your close to free agency guys for, for major league ready players instead of for, because I think that that aspect of tanking, I don't think works anymore. You're never going to get the super top prospects anymore because teams don't want to give those guys up. But guys like Luke Weaver or Carson Kelly or the, you know, the package they got for, for Granke that includes Seth Beer and J.B. Bukowskis, that seems, yeah, they, get, they did get Bukowskis. Um, that's more, I think, what they kind of want to do now or have been doing. And honestly, they've done it pretty well. I know, you know, it's easy to goof on Arizona from the outside because it never looks like they know what they're doing, or at least ends every five minutes. But you take the long view, it's all part of, and, and I'm going to use a word that everybody hates for good reason. It's all part of building a team that really, truly is sustainable. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's a team, it looks like Josh Rojas is one of the guys they got for Granky. So maybe he's good. I don't know. Regardless, um, this is the kind of analysis I know people come to your podcast for. Maybe this guy is good. Um, but I think they're one of those teams that actually manages to pull off that whole sustainable financial flexibility bunch of bull crap um, and make it work for them. I mean, that team really had no business winning 85 games last year. You know, they didn't like if you had looked at that roster before the season, you would not have said, oh, yeah, that team's going to be in the wild card race till the last like two weeks of the season. And yet they were. You know, maybe some of that is overperformance, but it seems like they really just have a good done a good job of building a roster that can just compete and that can be rolled over and that can be moved and that can be adjusted without really too much pain. I think, you know, when it comes down to it, Arizona really does look like one of the smarter front offices in baseball and one of the few that actually make that sustainability stuff sound like a plan and not use. And it's also a good sign that Mike Hazen showed no interest in going back to Boston. Like, just an objectively better job. And for him to just be like, no, I think what we can do in Arizona is just better. And I think, I have to imagine a lot of it is that there's just no pressure in Arizona. There's sure. no pressure at all. He can keep doing this ostensibly forever. until <laughs> Or until ownership decides we don't want to do this anymore. That is. And then the Pirates had the second half from hell that included a bunch of fistfights in the clubhouse and their clothes are getting arrested for, like, literally child pornography. So... That tends to screw things up, but also or also Pittsburgh's farm system is just not good, which is and I think Arizona's farm system is pretty solid. I'm not a farm system guy by any stretch of the imagination, but they have some interesting prospects down there. So I, I think, and I think this is something that not to get off on a tangent, but I think this is something that's going to be interesting to watch with Heim Bloom in Boston is going from a team that's not only under the radar in Tampa and where there's no pressure and where people are more than happy to write glowing stories about you and how smart you guys are and how you're the smartest team in baseball and you know you're always making the best of a bad situation to go to in my opinion quite literally the single worst destination for a GM in terms of expectations pressure and media that exists in baseball i think the only con- other contender the only other two contenders are the mets and the yankees and i think boston alone because boston seems miserable it seems miserable to try to build a team in that city especially because too you you're going to a roster that's always going to have superstars and big names on it which is a lot harder to manage overall than a team like tampa or arizona where it's just a bunch of kind of younger guys are just kind of happy to be there and i think that's what you saw in, in tampa with the whole like with the opener thing that that would not have worked in boston or new york because you not only would the media have been all over your ass every single day about it but you also would not have gotten the buy-in from the veteran, from the expensive veterans to be like, yeah, we'll do this. It, w- it just would not have happened. You can get away with that in Tampa, 
Um, but so I, I can totally understand why if the Red Sox did reach out to Hayes and he probably told them, or he did tell them, no, thank you. I'm happy just running this team here where 85 wins is counted as a victory and no one expects us to do anything more than that. Which brings us to Corey Kluber, who got traded to the Rangers. People were wondering for a while what was going to happen with Corey Kluber. Um, it feels like he's been on the trade block off and on for like three and a half years now. He got moved. I want to read you something from Fangraphs. Uh, friend of the pod, Craig Edwards, wrote this. Since the start of the 2016 season, Corey Kluber has been baseball's sixth best pitcher by war. That's despite making just seven starts last year. Even over the last three seasons, he's still in the top 10. And just two years ago, his 5.5 war ranked eighth. I, With all that being said, the return, as you discussed earlier on this podcast, was not great. You can be the biggest Emmanuel fan. Is it close? Chase? What was it? Emmanuel what? I Clay. Got this. Clay. Emmanuel, yeah. Emmanuel Clace. Clace, that's right. He throws 100 plus. That's cool. The Indians develop relievers maybe better than anybody in baseball. So maybe that's part of it where they're like, oh, we can create our own Araldus Chapman um, here in Cleveland. Maybe that's what they're thinking. And that might be a possibility. Who knows? He might be a lockdown closer for them down the line. Um, he's still pretty young. But they didn't get Brandon Marsh, who is a highly regarded prospect in the Los Angeles Angels farm system, which is a weird sentence to say in 2019. But shout out to Billy Epler and what they're doing right now. Um, I don't know. This is an objectively bad trade, I think, from the Indians, if one thing is true, which is he is still a bargain pitcher for a contender for the next season and a half. Does he have enough to get to, like, age 36 and a half? And the Indians obviously know Corey Kluber better than anybody, and maybe they're right in that this might be it, and that he might have a disastrous season this year, or he might not be available. Like, who... It's so hard to forecast this because if he's even average this year, and there's a lot of, like, yeah, I think he has to get, like, 160 innings to get, like, his option, player option, something. Like, his contract's really weird for the next year and a half, or the next two seasons. Um, there's a lot of incentives for him, basically, to be healthy this year. And I don't know. I think it's a huge risk. But then again, like you said, the Indians shed a lot of payroll here, and their payroll dropped another $20 million. This year, attendance dropped by 200,000 last year, and they they didn't even make the playoffs. Like, this is, there's so many different things about this trade that are fascinating to me. I just, it's so hard to talk about because until we see what Corey Kluber looks like the first couple months in a Rangers uniform, we really just can't comment on this other than just like, you know, this is, this is not a great return for someone who could be a number two or number three guy on a contender this year. Yeah, it feels light. And I know that, like you said, there are a lot of caveats there. One is Kluber turns 34 in April. Two is that he was, he was not pitching well before he got hurt last year. And while certainly he got hurt in a total fluke way with the, with the line drive off the forearm, I, I believe there was also some arm stuff going on, even aside from that, I think as he was, uh, as he was rehabbing. So, you know, that's not, there is some stuff there where you can feel a little concerned. And also, and also, like, you look at how many innings he's thrown. Between 2014 and 2018, he threw up almost 1,100 innings. That's 218 innings per year for five straight years. That's a lot. And I think you already saw 
in a similar vein, like a guy like Chris Sale, who had a similar workload over a similar period of time, just completely start to break down, which is ideal for the Red Sox, who just gave him a boatload of money. So I think there is a fair reason to be concerned. Like you said, the Indians know more about Corey Kluber than literally anyone. So clearly, the fact that they were willing to move him, I mean, even, even looking beyond the financial stuff, clearly means that they thought that going forward, Corey Kluber was not going to be worth the 17 to, or 17 and a half million he's making this year or is going to make next season. And the, yeah, his contract is weird because what looks like for 2021 is an $18 million team option. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm just going to quickly look up what exactly the deal is in terms of how this all works. innings for like certain things. Yeah. Happen. Yeah. And he can't finish there the season is, on the injured list. Yeah, there's a lot of weird stuff going on there that I think probably complicates it and maybe Indians feel not so great about it. Um, regardless, though, to me, the difference between something like the Indians trading Kluber and the Diamondbacks trading Paul Goldschmidt, which is a trade that at the time was like a salary dump and I really did not like, and it turns out um, actually ended up working pretty well for, for Arizona, what Cleveland got back just does not feel like enough. Even if they're the biggest fans of Emmanuel Place in the world and think they can turn him into a Roldis Chapman 2.0. And sure, maybe they can. The dude does throw a 100-mile-an-hour cutter, which is absolutely insane. Good relievers are not that hard to find, and they are especially not that hard to develop. You look at who's in their bullpen right now. Brad Hand, Nick Whitgren, Oliver Perez, Adam Simber, Hunter Wood, James... One of their best relievers is James Karinczak. He was a ninth-round draft pick in 2017. He, fun- he functionally cost them maybe $100,000. And he's one of their best relievers, or at least has some of the best stuff in their entire bullpen. Brad Hand, uh, a, a failed starter. Adam Simbers is just a, a, an utter nobody before he became a reliever. It's not that hard to find good relievers if you know what you're doing and if you have a good player development system. And like you mentioned, Cleveland is pretty good at developing relievers. So to me, it's like, because the other, the other piece of this trade was Delano DeShields Jr., who is functionally, he, he, what is the point? He's a fifth outfielder. For, and he's not, he's not even good enough to be a starting outfielder in Cleveland. And Cleveland is the worst outfield in baseball, probably. That, to me, is what, is what moves Kluber, in my mind, from they know something and they're just getting what they can to it's a salary dump. Because that's just not enough of a return for a guy who, if he's healthy and everything's okay, is a 200 inning a year starter with an, at a 120 ERA plus or better. Those guys don't grow on trees, and you should not just be giving them away for a guy who might be a closer someday and a fifth outfielder. That to me is just, the return to me is just what is what paints it as a salary dump because it's just not enough. It, it's simply not enough. It just feels like like Cleveland just taking the best they could get and moving on, which is weird because you would think that other teams would be would be more willing to to beat that offer. I know you mentioned the Angels didn't want to part with Brandon Marsh, which I find funny because the Angels, if there's anything the Angels system has probably too much of, it's toolsy outfielders who may or may not be any good. Um, you'd think they'd be happy to move on from a guy like Brandon Marsh in, in exchange for the dependability and reliability of Corey Kluber for their utter trash rotation. But I don't know. I, I just cannot feel good about the Kluber trade. Even if they feel really good about Clays, you know, even if they think Kluber is not going to be himself going forward, even if he's not going to be himself going forward, you're only talking about $35 million over the next two years. That should not be the make or break point for a team at all. No, like no way, shape or form. At least with Goldschmidt, you had the defense that he was going to be a free agent after the 2019 season. You know, same thing with Granke. He was making 35 million a year. That's a lot of money 
for if you, especially if you consider him to be a non-elite starter. But 35 million total over two years for a guy who, if he's healthy, is one of the 15 best pitchers in baseball. That's nothing, especially because. And I think this is the other. This is the other kind of like determining factor. Cleveland is way closer to a division title than Arizona is. As long as the Dodgers function, Arizona is not going to win the NL West. So many things have to go wrong with the Dodgers for the for the Diamondbacks to win the NL West. For the Indians win the AL Central, only one thing, only the Twins have to take a step back, which is totally feasible, or the Indians just have to play better. And, and for as much as like, you know, for as much as the Indians have their problems, they still won 93 games last year. They're not a bad team, and they won 93 games despite Jose Ramirez barely playing or barely playing well, and Corey Kluber not pitching the entire season more or less. Imagine what they could do with a fully healthy Kluber, and if Ramirez plays well the entire season. And if they put a little bit of effort into making the rest of that team better, into getting good outfielders, into doing better at, you know, at, at, at second base than currently Christian Arroyo, which is mind-blowing that a team will willingly go into the season with that. Like, it's not hard for Cleveland to take that next step, but it involves keeping Kluber. And that, that, all those factors to me are just why that Kluber trade just feels like such a, just a, an old, just a surrender, ultimately. Just a team giving up. And admitting that the most important thing is is the money involved and not how close they are to contention, especially when you consider that, you know, that they haven't won the World Series since 1948. All these Diamondbacks fans have seen a World Series in their lifetime, the great majority of them. You know, this is the thing, I, I start talking about Corey Clay, I just get more and more worked up because the Indians <laughs> are just, the, the Indians are basically just the kind of glamour pirates, as far as I can tell. I don't think they're, they can they're trade Lindor now, right? Like, there's no way you can do that to your like with the amount of payroll and like pre, like attendance is going to be worse for them this year. I think they're going to be a worse team. I don't think they care. I honestly don't think they care. Yeah, because this is a Mark Shapiro enterprise, or at least it, it was. I really don't think they want to make the playoffs. There. That this is a move that I don't think they're what, going to. I don't either. But I also think at this point, then that means it's going to get more and more awkward with Francisco Lindor in Cleveland. I the think I think they've already worse. I think they've already decided that any championship that happens in the remaining three years they have of Lindor, assuming they don't trade him, is not going to be because they tried. It's going to be just because it happens. It's going to be because it happens with who they have on the roster, who they can get for cheap, whatever it is they luck into. But it's very clear to me that they are not going to take advantage of the window they have. Can I list, Because if they, uh... if they were serious for a reliever and a fifth outfielder, can I list the uh, the Rangers Sorry, go ahead. starting rotation right now? It's actually pretty good. It's top ten in baseball, but it's just shout out to David Roth, friend of the pod. Um, it's let's remember some guys. It's unbelievable. It's a lot of guys: Corey Kluber, Lance Lynn, Mike Miner, Kyle Gibson, and Jordan Lyles is their five man rotation if the season started today. If you were to tell me that a contender was like, tell me the beginning of 2019 that the Rangers were going to be a contender with Mike Miner, Lance Lynn, Kyle Gibson, and Jordan Lyles in their rotation, I'd say you were on the the strongest drugs known to man. But here we but are, here we really John Daniels. Guys. Yeah, he is. He is. I know. I mean, here's the thing. I mean, obviously Kluber didn't really cost anything. I think if I were if I were Texas, if I were a Rangers fan. I'd rather have Anthony Rendon than Corey Kluber if I had to choose one of those two guys. I think Rendon does more for them than Kluber is going to. Uh, although, with the caveat that if Kluber is back to normal, 
that obviously is a much closer competition. But I think that rotation was okay enough without Kluber. It was certainly wasn't a great one, but it was fine. But the th- third base right now, they have Nick Solak. That's, that's not good. Nick Solak's fine. He's like a poor man's Ben Zobrist. But he, he, like that lineup needs a little help. You know, it, it's not a Josh it's Donaldson, not maybe. Great. And but apparently they're going to lose him to the Nationals. I, I'm that's the thing. Like Texas, I think Texas, like Anaheim or Los Angeles or the let's just say the Angels. Oh for, God, for you know who it's going to be? Oh no, who is it going to be? Nolan Arenado. No, uh, that's not going to happen. Hey, they got the pieces for Nolan Arenado. That's not going to happen. Yeah, probably not. It'd be fun as hell. Um, but I think the thing with with teams like the the Rangers and the Angels is they're in this kind of weird middle ground where it's they need to make big moves, but it can't just be one big move. Like the angels can't just stop at Rendon. The Rangers can't just stop at Corey Kluber. They've got to do more, which is why I find the angels reluctance to make a move for Kluber or to sign or to go in on, you know, whatever starting pitcher they could kind of weird. I'm sure they're well, going to get another starting on. pitcher. No at some respect point, for but, Dylan Bundy. No respect. Uh, boy. Dylan Bundy. I'd feel way better about if you were going to like one of those quote unquote smart teams. You know, that you felt like it actually unlocked something. But look at the Angels' rotation right now. Andrew Haney, Dylan Bundy, Griffin Canning, Patrick Sandoval, Jaime Berea, with presumably Otani getting on the mound yeah. some, sometime around the middle of the season, I would bet. I bet they're going to really slow play him. Oh, okay. I thought the plan some, was like he was going to be ready to go at the start of the season for both. I would wager if the earliest we'd probably see him is like mid to late May. I think they're going to be super, super careful with him. Regardless, though, that's a rotation that has some upside, but it's also got a, it's got, the floor is in the basement for that rotation. What well, can we talk about? That's like why they're interesting in that regard because they traded their 2019 first round pick in Cozart Will. in a salary dump. Will Wilson got moved to the Giants, yeah. and they did that to open up more money so they could sign Rendon and another starter. Like Bundy was just like another guy. They traded four picks for him and everything else, but um, it's. It's not a big deal. Not a lot of stuff went to Baltimore in that regard. They have a lot of young guys in their positional players that were enticing. Matt Tice was a former first rounder in 2016. They have guys in the pipeline that we've talked about, like Marsh. They have Joe Dahl. They have a couple other interesting things. But I think they're, they're not done. Ryu, I don't think it's going back to the Dodgers. I remember talking to Bill Plunkett of the OC Register about it. He doesn't think it's likely at all that he's back in Dodgerland. But the White Sox... That's not their MO. They want controllable years. That's not what it's going to be in, on the younger side. I I think the Angels are in good position to get somebody like that. But you also have to think about ground ball pitchers that they can go after because you have Anderton Simmons and Anthony Rendon on the left side of your infield. Like you have to utilize good. it with somebody. You got to get some ground ball guys. So I don't know who the best ground ball guy Dallas they can Keuchel. go after. Yeah, I, it's probably Keiko. Right. Like Dallas I think Keiko Keuchel would not Dallas be a surprise. Keuchel made- he made all the sense in the world for them last year. He still makes all the sense in the world for them now. He's a ground ball pitcher who is extremely durable and can be counted on for 180 plus innings, which is that more than anything is what the angels need is someone who they can pencil in every single fifth day and who can give them somewhere in the range of 180 to 200 av- above average innings, which is what Keiko will do because there is so much variance and risk in the rotation they currently have. Every one of those guys is an enormous injury risk or a very young pitcher who does not have a whole lot of innings to him's credit. Like there, there's like of that list, Haney, Bundy, Canning, Sandoval, Berea, and what, how much ever of a you get, who do you trust there? 
I know Otani's great. You know, I, Haney has his flashes. Canning is a very good, has been a very good uh, young pitcher. But there's no one there you feel 100% comfortable with over the course of an entire season, right? No. But that's why I think Keuchel and uh, Johnny Cueto are in the market. Or yeah, or maybe, or maybe they, maybe they pick up a subsidized Samarja or Cueto from the from the Giants. That would also make a lot of sense. Because I think that's that's the kind of thing they need to get a starter who they can count on for 150, ideally 180 plus innings. Because they don't have that right now. And if they don't get that, then what was the point of getting Rendon? You know, so that you can have a team that scores 850 runs but gives up 900. That's pretty much where they're trending at this point. You know, they scored, they gave up almost 900 runs last year. And the only real changes they've made pitching wise are, well, aside from the guy who died, um, is they, they never, they didn't really lose anything from that rotation, but they haven't gained anything either. You know, there's nothing to suggest that that 868 runs they gave up last year is really changed any direction or another. They'll score more runs for sure with Rendon in the lineup and, you know, with a with Otani in the lineup for a full season, ideally with a full season of Tommy Lastella, ideally with Justin Upton coming back to or getting better. Although I'm kind of concerned that Upton has finally hit the downswing. Ideally, with some however much of Joe Adele they get whenever they decide to call him up, that lineup that offense will be better. They also do need a catcher though. They really don't have any any good any good situation there. But they need pitching. They need to do something. I think Keiko would make perfect sense. I can't imagine he's looking for more than like a three year deal at this point. You know, just He's go get Dallas Keuchel. Three. No way. I could. I think it'd be like a three, like forty-five or something. Mm. Maybe three thirty-nine if you're lucky. But it just depends. Then again, it also Mike depends. On... got paid this winter, so anything's possible. I also, but I also do think to a certain degree the Angels have gotten kind of screwed. If it really is like Zach Wheeler wanted to pitch near New Jersey, um, Garrett Cole, obviously they were not going to top what the Yankees offered. Um, Baumgartner wanted to be in Arizona. Uh, whoever, who else has signed pitching wise already? You know, that it does seem like, but Keiko and Ryu. Yeah. And so it does seem like to a certain degree, like the guys they've missed out on, at least on the top end of the market, there's Strasburg. Strasburg wanted to go back to Washington. Um, it does seem like that elite tier of free agents, they just never really had a chance unless they just dramatically overpaid, which you could argue that if there's anyone they should have done that for it was Cole. They should have just told him, name a price that will make you happy to come here, and we will pay it. Um, that obviously would have taken them out of the running for Rendon. You can argue which one would be more valuable to them in terms of Cole or Rendon. But I think that's really the only guy they probably could have swayed if it's true that Wheeler and, and Bumgarner had geographic concerns. Because then after that, you're kind of, like you said, there's still Keiko, there's still Ryu. But then you're falling into the tier of like other guys have already signed, like Kyle Gibson, Michael Pineda, Rick Porcello, Wade Miley, like, they're fine. They're, they're back of the rotation starters. And you could certainly argue that some of those guys would actually be pretty good for the angels, because even if they're not great, they're at least dependable. Like a guy like Gibson or Porcello or Miley can give you 150 innings without really trying too hard, you know, because at this point now, like if they don't get Ryu or Keuchel and they're not interested in a trade, then they're gambling on guys like Alex Wood or uh, eventually when Rich Hill is healthy and back, or they're really reaching for like the bottom in terms of guys like Gio Gonzalez, Peyron, or um, I guess Urban Santana is out there for some reason. Or just, like the starting pitching market is pretty rapidly dried up, so they need to do something, and they need to do something quick because they really need to add at least one arm and ideally two to that rotation. All right. Well, we'll have to leave it there. 
John, is there uh, anything else you want to get off your chest with the winter meetings, the midseason hit, midseason winter meetings that uh, you would like to mention before we get out of here? No, it's just it is just nice to see winter meetings actually be an exciting, active thing again with deals being made and late night announcements. It's I don't think baseball's economic issues are solved. Certainly, I don't think this is something where it's like, oh, hot so back, you know, baseball's fine again. No, there's, there's still some stuff going on there that's concerning. But it is nice to see teams, especially teams like Texas and the Angels and you know other such squads. To trying Arizona. It's really nice to see those teams actually making an effort instead of just kind of shrugging their shoulders and going, eh, we'll see. So that's, that's good. I think it's, it's, it's general. It is, it's hard to say it's a, it, or better said, it's always a good thing when teams try. And hopefully the last two years, I don't think they're necessarily an aberration, but hopefully that's not going to be the case going forward. Hopefully teams will be a little more active. Although my, my super dark conspiracy theory is that, um, my, my dark conspiracy theory is that the owners are spending more this offseason in an attempt to gaslight the players into thinking things are back to normal and then pulling the rug out under from them in the next couple of one ahead of the CBA. Mm. My dark theory. I hope not, but I would not rule Yeah, me too. I, I, I also hope not, but I'm, I don't, I'm very cynical when it comes to the owners and how they treat Major League Baseball. So, John Taylor, always a pleasure, sir. And uh, we will we will talk again soon. Happy holidays, sir. You too, man. Thanks for having me. All right. That'll do it for today's episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast. Thank you uh, to the wonderful guests for coming on today's show. Thank you uh, to my wonderful listeners for listening to today's episode. Uh, I greatly appreciate it. Um, if you like today's episode, leave a five-star rating and a review on Apple. It would be great. Um, it helps the show continue to grow and I would very much appreciate it. Uh, you can also support the show on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash chase Thomas writer. Um, for as little as $5 a month, it helps the show keep the lights on. So that would be a great help to me as well. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at chase underscore Thomas. You could go to chase Thomas podcast.com, which has all of my stuff, all my episodes ever, um, links to everything that you need. Um, and all of my writing that uh, I'm doing fairly often these days um, on the NFL, on NBA, on college football, on pro wrestling. I write about everything. I write a lot. Um, so go read me on that front. So if you're not tired of listening to me, you can also read me. Um, so that's awesome. But uh, I think that's enough self-promotion from me for one episode. Uh, I hope you continue listening. That would be great. And uh, I will talk to you all again very soon. Thanks, guys. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.